It's been about a month since we were in 1 Peter, so let's review a little bit where we left off. In uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 12, Peter compelled his audience in this way, living stones serve your God in holiness. What does that holy living look like? Sometimes we want to make the idea of a holy life very generic. Trust and obey. That's true, but Peter has a very specific focus here in these verses. He calls his audience at the beginning of verse 13 to submit to every human institution. For Peter's audience, this meant to submit to unreasonable authorities just like Jesus did. He gives three examples. First, all citizens must submit to human government. And second, servants or slaves must submit to their masters. And third, wives must submit to husbands. We're going to look at the first two this week so we can get to what I think is Peter's main point in this section that starts in verse 13 and goes all the way down through verse 12 of chapter 3. And uh, the main point, I think, is found in verses 21 through 25. And the next week, we'll look at the beginning of chapter 3. Peter says, first of all, citizens submit to unjust kings and governors. I think it's important for us to remember as we consider this uh, command that Peter is giving to his audience that those in Peter's day didn't get to pick their rulers. That's a somewhat unique feature of our society here in the United States and some other places around the world that we have an opportunity in some way to participate in selecting our rulers. Peter didn't get to pick who was in charge. Neither did those he was writing to. First of all, to submit to the highest authority and his representatives in verses 13 and 14. Why? Verse 13 says, for the Lord's sake. So do it for the Lord's sake in order to be pleasing to God. Not out of a sense of guilt, not out of a sense of fear, but because it honors and pleases God. A second reason he gives is that government is meant to secure good for your life, to punish evil and to praise what is right. We see this in verse 14. Governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And our next thought might then be, well, what about when government doesn't uphold what is right and instead praises what is evil and punishes the good? And then we think about, or we should think about, what sort of rulers Peter probably has in mind when he's writing, submit to the king and submit to his governors. Peter's own experience during the course of his life was with the Herod in Jerusalem who killed babies to secure his own power in Matthew chapter 2. The Sanhedrin who wanted control of the people instead of listening to the truth in Acts 3 through 5. The descendant of Herod, the first Herod, who tried to kill Peter to win popularity with the Jews, but then God killed for blasphemy in Acts chapter 12. And most likely, toward the end of Peter's life, Nero, the emperor of Rome, who started out young and idealistic and ended up living selfishly in absolute power after he schemed to kill his mother and most likely his first wife as well. Those are the sorts of rulers Peter probably has in mind when he says, submit to the king and to every human institution. And so we might feel like we get off the hook of obedience when 
the authority is wicked. And the reality is that even unjust authorities like the Sanhedrin still deserve submission as the default response until they either prohibited what God said we must do or they commanded what God said we cannot do. What did this look like for Peter? Let's flip over for a moment here to Acts chapter 4, verse 13. The apostles are preaching and teaching. The Sanhedrin are amazed. They said, what can we do? A miracle's happened. We can't deny that it's happened. Too many people have seen it. Let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. When they summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John said, whether it's right in God's sight to give heed to you instead of God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And then in chapter 5, they find them again preaching in the temple. And then in verse 27 of chapter 5, they brought them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. God raised up Jesus. He is the one whom God exalted. We are witnesses of these things. And so sometimes people have tried to disconnect the commands of Peter here in chapter 2 from the life experience of Peter, for example, in the book of Acts. And that, I think, is a foolish thing to do because you can't disconnect Peter's own experience and the way that he acted as an apostle with the, the admonitions he gives as an apostle here in this letter that he writes. And so Peter is not saying obey government unquestioningly in every instance without any exceptions. But what he is saying is, you better have a really, really, really good reason not to follow the authorities that God has set up over you. And that authority is not, I don't like them individually as people. That reason is not, I don't like what they're asking me to do. How many of you like to pay taxes? Nobody. Does that mean we, don't get, to pay, we get to not pay taxes because we don't like it? No. Do we get to not follow laws that have been established simply because the people establishing them are personally and morally wicked? No. So here's, I think, what Peter is saying. We'll get to that in just a moment. He's saying, if you're a citizen, submit to the government God has placed over you. Many of the people who represent you in our local and state government are unbelievers who despise Christians. But if Peter commanded a modeled submission to Herod's and Nero's and the Sanhedrin, we don't get a free pass to ignore the government just because the people making the laws hate God. There are lines to be drawn. When Peter was told to stop talking about Jesus, he refused because God is the highest authority. But when Jesus was asked about paying taxes, he said to render what was owed. So pay your taxes even if you don't like them, but don't stop telling people about Jesus. What about something like if your state representative is living in a moral life? It's a guy living with his girlfriend. He's a woman living with another woman. Do you get to ignore the laws that they have established? What if your senator believes in genocide of the unborn? You and I still have to respect them as delegated authorities 
appointed by God and obey them up until the point at which what they tell us to do is something God has said we can't. And that's what Peter's laying out for us. And there are going to be moments when that frustrates us to no end because that is a hard thing to live up to, to obey authorities that are wicked, that are cruel, that you don't like, but who God put over you. Why should we do this? Peter says to submit to authorities because consistent obedience to authorities silences false accusations against God's people. First of all, because God commands it. Second of all, because it kicks the legs out under the accusations that unbelievers bring against God's people. They are stirring up riots. They are trying to overthrow the government. They are this, that, and the other thing. That's what Christians were accused of in the first century church. They're plotting against Rome. They're scheming against um, Herod, all of whatever it might be. They were accused of those things, but to the extent that Peter's audience is seen obeying the laws of the land as much as possible, that undermines their accusations. Doing right means that unbelievers have no basis, and this is the important word here, to legitimately accuse you of doing evil. They're still going to accuse you of doing evil. Think about Paul. Paul is admonished by James and the other apostles, hey, go to the temple, pay the vow for these men who are probably fulfilling a Nazarite vow, and and follow all of the things with them, and we think this will sort of smooth things over and, and there won't be any more commotion in Jerusalem because of you being here. Paul goes there, and what happens in Acts chapter 21? He's standing in the temple. Jews from Asia see him, stirred up the crowd, laid hands on him. Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. For they previously saw Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they assumed Paul brought him with them into the temple. All the city was provoked and the people rushed together and seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple and shut the doors and sought to kill him. Was Paul doing what was right? Yes. Was he following the the laws of Jerusalem and the things the Sanhedrin had set out and more importantly what God had set out? Yes. And he was still falsely accused. But you know what happened when the Romans rescued him from the Jews who were trying to kill him? And they examined him. Their consistent testimony was this. This man has done nothing worthy of particularly death, but even being imprisoned. Now, some of them still were waiting for a bribe, so they kept Paul locked up for two years, seeing if he might have a rich friend come along and help them out. Some of them still were so concerned about pleasing the Jews that instead of giving Paul a fair trial, it got to the point that Paul had to appeal to Caesar before he could be rescued. But Peter is making the point here, if you live a godly life and follow the laws of the land as much as possible, unbelievers have no legitimate basis on which to accuse you of stirring up unrest and all those sorts of things. More importantly, doing right shows that you understand freedom from sin is not freedom to sin. It says in verse 16, Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. You act as free men because you are free. 
You are freed from sin's curse through the law. See this, for example, in Galatians 3.13 and Galatians 5.1-6. You are freed from sin's curse connected with the law that condemned you. But that doesn't mean that you're free to do whatever you want and sin just because Jesus fulfilled the law and, and you've been freed from the law. You were freed not to do whatever you want, but to be God's slaves and walk by the Spirit, Galatians 4, 13 to 18. And also here, you are not to use your freedom as a covering for evil, but as bond slaves of God. What does it look like to use your freedom as a covering for evil? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's a man who's committing immorality with presumably his stepmother in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and the people at the church of Corinth are boasting in it and saying, hey, we have freedom to do whatever we want because Jesus has forgiven our sin. And Paul said to them, kick him out of the church. Let him recognize that he is standing in the grip of Satan, and if he doesn't repent, he's condemned to hell. In the same way, if we use the fact that Jesus has paid for our sins as an excuse to sin, saying, well, God's grace will cover it all, we don't even understand what salvation really and truly means. Because salvation is not about you're off the hook, so feel free to do whatever. It's about your sins are forgiven, so now you're free to serve God instead of being consumed by all the sinful habits that ruled your life before you knew Jesus. You are free to be God's slaves and walk by the Spirit. So submit because that is what God commands. Submit because it removes the basis for false accusations and submit because differing relationships have different appropriate responses. We see this in verse 17. All people deserve honor. Why might that be? I think it's because we're all made in God's image. So all people deserve honor as human beings. We don't treat other people like animals or inferior or less than us because all people are made in God's image. He says to love the brotherhood. Why are we to love those who are fellow believers? Because we are one in Christ. He says, fear God. Why does God deserve fear? Because at the most simple reason, because he is God. So fear God because he is God. Uh, we were talking about this at the end of Hosea 10. If God is willing to go to the point of bringing in cruel pagan nations to conquer his people, to wake them up from their idolatry, then we should fear God for his power and his love because he is willing to go to whatever lengths necessary to carry out his purpose in our lives. And we ought to fear a God who is that consumed by his own righteousness and holiness and that fervent about his love for his people. And then finally in verse 17, honor the king. Kings deserve honor, why? Because God has given them authority over us. And so Peter's going to transition from this idea of submitting to unjust rulers to his second example, slaves who had unreasonable masters. And because you and I aren't in master and slave relationships today, I think we tend to want to jump right away to what parallel does this look like in our society, something like a boss with an employee. And I think that's a legitimate application of verses 18 through 20, but I think we need to first see specifically what he's saying in its context before we jump to that application. Paul, or not Paul, Peter is talking to people who are slaves and who are unable to pick a different job. If you and I have a difficult job, what's our response? I can quit and go do something else. Not always. Sometimes we feel like we're stuck in that job. But we 
at least think that it's an option that's on the table. Peter's talking to people who are slaves who probably have no option whatsoever of being freed, at least for the immediate future. And Peter says to them, submit to unreasonable masters in verses 18 through 20. What does this look like? Submitting to masters with all respect, verse 18. All respect. And we might say, well, but they don't deserve respect. Maybe just to those who are good and gentle. The good masters. We can submit to them because, yes, they have authority over me, but they're being reasonable about it. And Peter says, no, this even extends to those who are unreasonable. Still have to show them respect. There's been a lot of discussion in the last mm, 10 years, but particularly the last few years, about things about slavery in the United States and in history in general and all of those sorts of things. A few thi- uh, things that I want to remind you of quickly. Slavery in the Old Testament was primarily because you owed money or you got captured in battle. It was not primarily something, although there were exceptions to this where this was the case, it was not primarily something that was on the basis of this particular group being uh, like the ethnicity of a particular group of people. There are exceptions to this, and some of this tied into the being captured in battle. Like you went and fought against another nation because they were another nation, and then if you captured some of them and took them into captivity, you end up with situations like the servant girl from Israel who's in Naaman's house as his slave who then leads him over to meet Elijah or Elisha. So there, there are instances of things like that. But they did not primarily enslave her because she was an Israelite, but just more as a consequence of the fact that they beat the Israelites in battle. So slavery in the Bible is not one for one with slavery in more recent times in history. That being said... um, It is interesting to see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, where he talks about this subject. And he says that I think that it's best if you remain as you are. But then he says a little bit later in the passage, he says, Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it, but if you are able to become free, rather do that. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You are bought with a price, therefore do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in the condition in which he was called. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, when he's saying all of these things, um, he's not saying that it's okay for the master to treat someone harshly. But I think he is saying to his audience who are slaves, you don't have immediate control over the fact of your being in slavery. You do, by God's grace, have control over the nature of your response to that unreasonable master. He develops this further and he says, Submit to evil masters because God is pleased with obedience through undeserved suffering. If you serve well with a clear conscience, God is pleased. 
For the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. If you receive harshness because you deserve it, you're only getting proper consequences of your sin. What credit is there if you sin and are harshly treated, you endure with patience? If you steal from your master and your master beats you, I think Peter would be saying there should be some kind of consequence for the sin that you committed, and you shouldn't immediately say, oh, look at me, this is unfair, look at how terrible my master is to me. That's something in which there's a sense that that was brought upon themselves. Now, is the master still potentially being cruel? Does he need to beat the slave because the slave is stolen from him? Not necessarily, but if you get some sort of suffering and there is a degree to which it's deserved, you can't then say, well, I didn't deserve this and how in the world could this happen to me and look at how terrible my master is. But... If you're doing right but suffering for it, God is pleased. Think about the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph worked very hard for his master to do everything possible for his master to succeed. His master's wife lies against him, and the master treats Joseph unfairly and unreasonably. Did Joseph do anything wrong? No. So Joseph did not get thrown in prison when Potiphar's wife accuses him because he deserved it. His faithfulness to God, even in prison, when he didn't deserve to be there, was a testimony to the people who were over him in the prison, to Potiphar when he encountered him again, because in all likelihood, Potiphar sees him when he becomes the second in command of Pharaoh in Egypt. And if I was Potiphar, I would have been worried. But his response in that situation was a testimony to God. And that's the point that Peter's making. The point of the passage is not primarily about whether slavery is right or wrong and whether we should seek to abolish it and all those sorts of things. And that's a whole different topic where the form of slavery that existed in, for example, in England and the United States was wrong and should have been abolished and thankfully has been at least the institution of it. Peter's point, though, is not primarily about all of those issues, which are issues to be considered. Peter's point is primarily, if you're in a situation about which you have little to no control and you are treated unfairly and unjustly, you have the possibility of one of two responses. Complain about the evil master who is over you, which in essence ultimately is a complaint about God because if God is actually in control of what's happening in the world, God has put you in that situation, at least for a time. So you can complain against the master and ultimately against God. Or you can say, I'm going to suffer for the sake of righteousness and continue to obey even though it's the last thing maybe that I think I want to do as a human being. And here's the thing that I think leads us into the end of the chapter. God being pleased with obedience despite unjust suffering seems strange. Let me come back to that in just a moment. Let me make a quick application about what this might look like today. You and I are not in master-slave relationships, however much we might complain about the sort of work that we have to do at different points. You and I are not in 
spots where we are unable to leave our employment. But if you're under authority in your work, you're going to have people that you're accountable to. And the reality is sometimes those people want you to fail. They will give you the worst shifts, or they'll lie about your performance, or they'll do their best to make your life miserable. And you have, in many, perhaps most cases, the option to leave for some other job. Maybe it's not as good of a paying job, maybe it's one that's not really what you want to do, but in most cases, you and I have the opportunity to go do something else when it comes to our work. I think this little section should call us to consider the power of a godly example. How might God use you to be a testimony of Him to those who hate you and hate God? How could God use you to bring that person who's over you and treating you unjustly and unfairly and unreasonably, potentially bring that person to salvation if you persevere in that difficult situation, at least for a while, instead of immediately taking the easy way out and quitting? And we're going to explore more next week even though we talked about it a little bit here now, the idea of how far to go in enduring suffering from an ungodly authority. And we need God's wisdom to know where those boundaries are, but we should let them be God's boundaries because most often the thing that drives us in a situation where we're being treated unfairly is I don't like this and this is uncomfortable and my life would be much easier if I went over here and did something else. And while that may be a legitimate option and where God wants us to end up, I don't think that that should always be our immediate reaction. This is hard, I quit. That person's terrible, forget him, I'm out of here. Because if Peter could call slaves who probably didn't have a choice, at least until their debts were paid or their situation radically and unexpectedly changed, if Peter called them to submit to unreasonable masters because God could use their testimony to bring those masters to salvation... I think that we can probably persevere in difficult situations at work for slightly longer than we're prone to in many cases. One other quick aside on these verses. I think it is worth going and reading the book of Philemon and considering what Paul says to Philemon and to One- about Onesimus, Philemon's slave who ran away, encountered Paul in Rome, got, sla- got saved, and then Paul sends him back to Philemon Paul, or rather, Paul sends him back to his master. And what was the point of doing that? Paul says, I, he left you as merely your servant, as your slave. I'm returning him back to you as a fellow brother in Christ. So now the master has an obligation to treat his slave. When they gather with God's people, they're on equal footing before God. And he has an opportunity now as the slave to serve his master faithfully and wholeheartedly in the way that Paul describes in the book of Colossians, which was probably carried back with the book of Philemon to the church at Colossae. Not with, as it says, I think the King James says, I serve as men pleasers, but because God is the one that you're ultimately serving. So don't give up too quickly on situations where you have an unreasonable authority over you in the context of your work because God can use it for that person's benefit and for yours as well. Going back to what I was saying a moment ago, God being pleased with obedience through unjust suffering seems strange until we realize it's exactly what Jesus experienced.
Peter already made clear earlier in this book the, collect, the connection between believers and Jesus himself. Jesus is the basis of their faith in and relationship with God. We saw this in chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 21. He's the source of their joy and suffering. We saw that in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Jesus is the one who suffered and was glorified, chapter 1, verse 11, that the prophets foresaw. The one who is rejected by men but chosen by God as the cornerstone here at the beginning of chapter 2. Now Peter is going to show that since believers are connected with Jesus, and since Jesus suffered and had a particular response to suffering, Jesus provides an example of suffering and yet still pleasing and obeying God in the midst of that suffering. And so I think, although the first two points are important, submit to unjust rulers and submit to unreasonable masters, the main point that Peter is getting at in this section from the middle of chapter 2 to the middle of chapter 3 is, believers submit to unreasonable authorities just like Jesus did. Jesus is our example of suffering because he did right. Jesus always obeyed God the Father and never sinned or deceived. Verse 22, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Because Jesus obeyed God the Father, he was hated by human authorities, and those who had power over him falsely accused him and treated him harshly, yet he did not respond with harshness or with lies or with any kind of sinful response. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. So Jesus is under human authority, rulers who had power over him. In a sense, once he's arrested, masters who have power over him, and his response to their threats and to their beatings and to their sin against him is not to destroy them, not to plot against them, not to speak evil back to them, but to suffer in a way, verse 23, he kept entrusting to him who judges righteously. Jesus trusted God the Father to accomplish justice on his behalf and I think sets out an example for us if we are falsely accused or reviled or mistreated, that we similarly, ultimately, have to entrust our souls to God. Does that mean there's never a place to be made for trying to accomplish justice in this life? I think it's right to pursue justice. We see examples of the apostles to the extent that they had citizenship or laws that would protect them. They sometimes took advantage of those laws and those protections. But I think we all know that there are situations when laws fail and injustice happens despite the fact that there are structures that are supposed to accomplish it. If that's the situation that you find yourself in, falsely accused, imprisoned, mistreated, whatever it is, Peter says the solution is not that everything is set right in that moment, because it may very well not be. There are people who are falsely accused of all sorts of horrific things, harming their children, some sort of abusive kind of action, and that stigma follows them around for the rest of their lives, even though they may very well have been innocent of it. 
justice and the truth may not win out in this life. But if you find yourself in one of those situations, you can still entrust your soul to God who sees and knows and accomplishes justice and vindicates you and who will deliver you. But who can do that? Jesus is our example, but you can only follow his example if you have died to sin with him. This is an important point about the, uh, what Jesus accomplished on the cross, the atonement. There are people who have falsely said in times past that all Jesus did in his death and all of that was just to provide an example to us. All he was was an example. But Jesus is our example, but he, couldn't, he could never be more than an example unless he actually accomplished something, and he did actually accomplish something. Jesus died to take our sins upon himself. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. It's not just Jesus suffered and sometimes you're just going to get a uh, kind of be in a bad situation and you're going to suffer and Jesus suffered so you can suffer because Jesus made it through. So by the power of determination, you can make it through too. That's not what he's saying. He's saying Jesus helps you and accomplishes something which is the crucifixion of your sins by his crucifixion to bear your sins so that you no longer have to have the selfish, sinful, evil response that you would naturally have to being mistreated. I'm going to fix this. I hate them. I'm going to deal with them. I'm going to get back at them and take revenge. Why are movies like Gladiator or The Patriot or any of those sometimes appealing to us in our flesh? Because there's the part of us that says, they did this to me, I will do that and more to them. Jesus, by dealing with our sin, can remove and quench that desire for revenge against those who have done us wrong and turn it into forgiveness such that we follow his example Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do that Jesus himself set out, and we see exemplified in Stephen as well. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. How can you and I get from, here's what they have done wrong to me, I hate them, and they will pay, to vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Only if Jesus has actually dealt with our sins. And only if we have actually experienced that death to sin by becoming one with Jesus through genuine salvation. Sometimes we think salvation is, I pray a prayer, and then I sort of go to church somewhat for the rest of my life, and then God's kind of happy with me and I get into heaven. Salvation is a lot more than just a one-time religious experience that then leads to a lifetime of external obligation. Salvation is something that sort of permeates the entirety of your being and transforms you from the inside out, from someone who hates 
to someone who forgives, from someone who seeks vengeance, to someone who shows love to enemies. That's what genuine salvation looks like. And Peter is saying, submit to every human institution, unjust rulers, unreasonable masters, because Jesus submitted to both and in his death gives you the power to do the same. Jesus died so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. And then we can return to God instead of wandering. Verse 25, you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Think about that statement set against the backdrop of the experience of the Israelites over and over and over and over and over again. They wandered away from God. Jesus looks out on the hills around Jerusalem in the land of Israel and says, I see the people like sheep without a shepherd. And Peter says, the work that Jesus as the shepherd and guardian of your souls has done can gather you back to himself you Israelites who had been strained, teach you to forgive, teach you to be not like Jonah, who's like, God, we hate the Assyrians, and you really need to burn their place down. But instead of being like Jonah, to be like Jesus, to be like Stephen, to be like those in the early church who suffered, but did not hate their captors and those who were persecuting them, jump forward centuries to be like someone like Corey ten Boom who looks at her, the, the Nazis who are persecuting her as a Jewish person and at first she hates them and then through the testimony of her sister her heart changes and she forgives them and some of those who portrayed unspeakable cruelties on God's own people came to salvation through Jesus and repented of their sins. That's exactly what Peter is talking about here. And you can't do that on your own. You and I can't, by willpower, muster up the ability to forgive people that we naturally would hate who have done wrong to us by our own strength and our own efforts. Maybe briefly, maybe for a day or two, maybe for a month or so, maybe for a year, but not in the way that we see here. This is a work that only God can accomplish. So how, in you, how can we submit to unjust government and unreasonable overseers? Because Jesus modeled how obedience to God is going to put you in that place of suffering from people like that. And yet how by God's help you can keep obeying anyway, even if it means doing what is right to the point of death. Because Jesus has died to pay for sin, you can, through Jesus, die to sin and be freed from sin. And then you no longer need to fear death, and you can obey God with your highest authority, even when the only authorities you see are wicked and cruel. Think about Stephen. If Stephen had just shut up for a minute, he probably wouldn't have gotten stoned. But just like Peter and the other apostles said, we must obey God rather than men, and we cannot stop speaking of the things that we have heard, that was the point at which Stephen found himself where he kept speaking and pointing people to Jesus, not in a harsh or cruel or hateful way, but he said, 
Jesus that you have crucified, if you will turn to him, he will forgive you. He's the only way to God. He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises from the Old Testament. Believe in him and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all the people associated with religious leadership in the temple. They hated him for saying it and they killed him. And so Stephen obeyed to the point of death. And the reason he was at the point of death was because of his obedience, just like Jesus. And yet in that moment of his death, what could he say? Father, forgive them, and he could die without hatred in his heart for those who had treated him unjustly and killed him falsely on the basis of false accusation because he had experienced what Peter talks about in verses 21 through 25. Peter is calling those who heard his book long ago and those of us who read it now to submit to unreasonable authorities just like Jesus did. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts so that we would be transformed from an attitude of taking our own vengeance to letting you as a faithful creator deal with those who are accomplishing evil in this world. There are so many moments, I think, throughout the course of our lives or if we look back over history that people have, whether openly or just in words or even just in the depths of their hearts, have rebelled and resisted and just writhed under the unjust authority that they found themselves Peter himself pulled out a sword and tried to stop the crucifixion. And Jesus, in a moment of compassion, put the servant's ear back on and told Peter, this is not the time or the place. It is not weakness for us, Lord, to endure suffering well. because we see that Jesus did it, setting us an example. I pray that we would not suffer because we deserve it, but to the extent that you bring suffering into our lives, it is only because of our faithfulness to you and to be used as a testimony of your grace despite the undeserved nature of it, that we would not be self-righteous in a moment like that, but realize the only way that we're able to bear up under suffering the way that Jesus did is because of your work in our lives. And so we don't get to take credit for it and say, look how great we are. Because the reality is, in so many instances, there are other sins that we need to be dealing with, even in the moments when we have a right response like we see modeled in this passage here. 
like the man who faithfully served the young, um, uh, wayward sort of profligate man that we read about in the story of George Mueller, and saw him come to Christ like Stephen, who saw Paul come to Christ from heaven. Like many others down through the centuries who have seen or perhaps have not seen the fruit of their faithfulness in suffering lead to the salvation of people that you wanted to bring into your kingdom, I pray that you would help us to have the response that Jesus did that we see in this passage. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.